The Way BK podcast is dedicated to pursuing and promoting a true understanding of Jesus Christ and the transformation He provides for all who submit to Him to live in a way that is pleasing to God as revealed in the Bible. Let's join our hosts as they discuss The Way. What's up, everybody? Thanks again for joining us here on The Way BK podcast. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 10 today. So if you have a Bible uh, or if you want to pull one out on your device or whatever, you can open there to Acts 9 and 10. And today we're going to be talking about conversion. Uh, so Caleb, probably I guess the thing we need to do before we jump into these stories is kind of give a definition of what we mean. The word conversion gets thrown around in religious circles, but it it can be one of those just religious words that kind of doesn't mean anything. It's just a word. So uh, when I think about conversion, I don't know about you, when I think about conversion, I, I think about money, which is a, maybe a stupid thing. But, you know, you talk about you've got one thing and then it gets changed into something different. It's actually kind of the same substance. Like if you have $100 and you convert that into yen or euros or whatever, you've taken the, uh, the value of that thing and you've converted it into something quite different. But it's still, it was the original thing just got changed into something. So it's not like that thing ceased to be the thing that it was. But in another way, it's something totally and radically different. And I think when you read in the Bible, that's what God's trying to do with human beings. He's trying to take us and restore our real humanity and take away the bad stuff. And in that way, he's completely changing us, taking away all the bad, bringing in the good. But it's not like we cease to be who we are. There's a, a continuation of our lives, and we just become something different in our lives. But for sure, it's a change, but it's not... Uh, ceasing to exist or something like that like some religions would kind of promote like you need to like dehumanize yourself or that's probably an overly negative way of talking about it but you mm-hmm. empty yourself out of your emotions or your thoughts or whatever it's not really what conversion is in christianity it's just a total transformation of yourself and your thoughts and your patterns of behavior and all that kind of thing but that's some of my thoughts on conversion what do you think about when you uh define or try to think about conversion well i think that's helpful because um a lot, a lot of people, when you th- when we talk about conversion, a lot of people think about it just in terms of like, um, you know, adopting a new religion, or you, you're just um, you, you're just coming to believe in something that you didn't believe in before. And uh, I th- what we're seeing in the Book of Acts is that when God is converting people back to Him, it's much more than just getting them to like say I believe in Jesus it's it has it has everything to do with a completely new new way of living mm-hmm. a, a completely new life and uh, that fits with the way the the apostles write about conversion and speak about being renewed into the image of Christ becoming sure. partakers of the divine nature um, you know the, this the idea being that God is taking us from what we've been corrupted into, and he's bringing us back into what he originally created us to be, um, created in his image. Um, and so I think you're right. Conversion. When we think about conversion, what we need to think about is a complete transformation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, as you pointed out, is something we've already seen quite a bit in Acts. Mm-hmm. I'm going to forget some, but I mean, you got the people in Acts 2 who went from the people who murdered the Messiah to people who are selling their homes taking their meals with gladness and sincerity of heart, et cetera, et cetera. That's Acts 2. And, I mean, and Acts 4, you have some of that. Yeah, and they start are preaching the gospel, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, in Acts 6, we've got this portrait of people who are kind of 
disinterested in those who are different from them, whether it be because of economic or life circumstance or racial reasons that are working together as a family, taking care of each other, providing for each other. In Acts 8, you got the story of Simon and the Samaritans believing in the Jewish Messiah, um, mm-hmm. the Ethiopian in Acts. I mean, there's just a lot of stories already in the few chapters in Acts we've seen of radical changes that have happened in people's lives. So this is kind of a consistent theme that when the gospel uh, is manifested to somebody and someone understands what it really means that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords and he's risen from the dead, a real radical change happens in those people's lives. Yeah, that's right. And and one of the things that Acts has been emphasizing too uh, is that God can change anybody. Yes. God can convert anyone. Uh you you know you've got you you don't just have like the strict religious Jews becoming mm-hmm. uh, devoted disciples of Jesus. You also have an Ethiopian, you know, who is a, who is a treasurer yeah. of the in charge of the king queen's treasury down in in Ethiopia, who comes to Jerusalem to seek the the true God, and he doesn't find everything he's looking for there. It's on the way back when. He's converted. His life is completely changed. And we're going to see that today, too. I mean, uh, with with Saul of Tarsus, this is like, what? I mean, he's about as far anti-Christ as you can get, um, and yet uh, a Pharisee of Pharisees, and now he becomes a devoted disciple. Cornelius, you know, this uh, random centurion from from uh, the Roman army who, uh, who, who becomes a God-fearer and comes to know the Lord. I mean... God is taking people you wouldn't expect and he's making them into his people and he's using them for good. Yeah. So why don't we get into it? I mean, talk about that one then. So we've seen conversion. It's this total transformation of taking who you are and really becoming something different than what you were. Um, It's a constant theme that whenever you interact with the gospel, it's intended to bring about a conversion, a total change. And as you pointed out, anybody, everybody must be converted and anybody can be converted by the gospel. Uh, so why don't we get into those? We're going to look at these two stories in Acts 9 and 10 and try to think about what do these stories teach us about how conversion happens, how conversion works, um, the types of people that need conversion, just kind of these two pictures of it, and then try to draw out some principles for today. For those of us, maybe if you're listening and you're not a Christian, but you're intrigued by the gospel and you realize you need to be converted, you need to be changed, these lesson, these stories can provide some lessons that be helpful for you. If you are a faithful disciple, this can help you in terms of your influence on other people as you're trying to think about bringing people to be converted to Christ. Um, and it's just a good kind of summation of, of how this works. So let, let's get into it. Like talk about Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter nine and what we learn about conversion from this story. Well, so the first time this guy Saul of Tarsus comes up is back in Acts chapter seven. It's the first time a disciple of Jesus is being killed for their faith. And Stephen gets stoned. Um, we've talked about that already. And but, but one of the things that Luke highlights is that when Stephen was being stoned, the people who were throwing the rocks at him uh, laid their coat, took their coats off yeah. and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Um, and we find out right after that in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, that right as Stephen is falling asleep and as Stephen dies, Saul is excited or in hearty agreement with uh, with the putting of him to death. It, Saul wasn't just an innocent bystander; right. he is an excited um, advocate of this of this action of of destroying Stephen. So right after that, Saul begins 
throwing all of Jerusalem into confusion. He goes from, from house to house, goes through the church, just dragging off men and women and right. putting them in prison. Uh, He's trying to totally stamp out this, <coughs> what he sees as a blasphemous um, you know, breakaway movement from the true faith of Judaism. He's trying to stamp it out before he gets started. Yeah, the picture that Luke gives is like he's the he's the guy leading the rampage against Christianity. He's the mm-hmm. he's the number one antichrist. You yeah. know, we're gonna we're gonna squash this 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 uh, evil sect before it gets off the ground. Um, of course, it doesn't work. And every time Saul tries to arrest people and put them in prison, as he does that, the gospel just keeps on spreading. And, uh, and, it, and it kind of backfires. So, so as these people start to scatter, because they're getting run out of their homes, they're getting chased, they're getting thrown in prison, people start scattering, they leave Jerusalem, and they're headed to all these other cities. Well, so what does Saul decide to do? Well, I'm going to chase them down. Like, I'm going from city to city. So he takes this long trip in chapter 9 all the way up to Damascus. This is not a, not a short journey when he heads all the way up to Damascus. And his plan is... He's gotten letters from the high priest to be able to go to the synagogues of Damascus and, and, and find anybody who belongs to the way. And if they belong to the way, he's going to bring them back, men and women, bind them and bring them to Jerusalem and give them the punishment that they deserve. Um, from Saul's perspective, he's a man who's walking in the light. He loves the Lord. He's doing what he believes is right. This is an evil, um, uh, pompous, self-centered, proud Jewish rabbi who's claimed to be um, the Christ when he's really not, and uh, and because of that, Saul sees himself as a defender of the faith, um, who's walking in the light and going to try to bring people out of darkness or crush them if they're going to stay in their dark mm-hmm. darkness. Um, what is interesting is though that the way Luke presents the story, Saul is the one who's actually in darkness, right. um, and the only way that he can come to realize that is by an encounter with Jesus himself, where a light from heaven flashes around him. This is chapter 9 and verse 3. And Saul, the light is so bright that that Saul falls to the ground, and he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Um, And Saul's response is, Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. And from that moment... Everything in Saul's life begins to change. For one thing, he's blinded. Uh, when the light uh, disappears, the men who are traveling there are, are standing speechless. They heard the voice. They didn't see anything. But Saul gets up, and he his eyes are open, but he can't see anything. Right. He's, he's completely blinded. And it took this blinding from God for Saul to recognize just how spiritually blind he's been. Mm-hmm. Um, at that moment, he finally recognizes that Jesus really is the Christ. Um, and I'll be honest, if I'm Saul and I've been living the life that I'm in, I don't think anything short of a, a direct encounter with Jesus in heaven would convince me otherwise. Uh, but we know that he's convinced by this because he goes for without, without sight for three days. He doesn't eat or drink. He just spends all of his time praying. And in the meantime, God sends him a disciple, Ananias, to his house. Um, one of the things that's interesting to me, though, is the fact that Saul comes to believe in Jesus does not mean yet that he's been fully converted to Jesus. And in fact, Jesus doesn't say, hey, you're now one of my disciples. He says, go into the city, and verse 6, and it will be told you what you must do. The implication being that 
for for a person to become a to become converted to become a disciple there were things that must be done besides just recognizing that Jesus really is the Christ and so he goes there and he waits and he prays and you might think I mean really the next three days are are, are spent in repentance like changing his mind and you, I don't I don't know what Saul was thinking about but it must have been a hard three days as he's reflecting on his view of God his view of Jesus his view of uh, his view of his entire life and all the things that he thought were right that he was doing that are now wrong I mean this is hard hard three days for him yeah there's some deep regret even the fact that the text says he didn't eat or drink yeah yeah that's extreme for three days I mean I, I can yeah and and also he's blinded right so I mean you can't do anything else you know you can't get on his iPhone or you know get on Instagram or whatever I mean he's he's, he's just sitting there with three days to sit and think. Um, and I've been sick the past week and had some time to sit at home and think. And man, uh, like, it'll get you thinking and reflecting on on, uh, on life. So, uh, so Especially when your life's been so... This wasn't just like a regular nice Jewish guy, as you pointed out. This guy was leading the charge against Jesus, the blasphemer. That's right. And now he's realized, oh, wait, Jesus is the Messiah. I've been so wrong, and I was fighting for the Messiah, or so I thought, and actually I was fighting against him the whole time. Yeah, that's right. That would right. be tough. The blood of Stephen's on my head. That's right. Right? The blood, you know, the blood of these people that have beaten and thrown in prison. Sure. Like, and um, their kids are orphans now because yeah. of me. And yeah. All that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, not to mention now, what do I do? You know, like right, I'm right, stuck right. between a rock and a hard place. The church hates me. You know, like surely, don't they? Yeah. Like, I mean, I've been killing them, and, uh, and, and now I know that the the, the everything I've been fighting for is a lie. Like yeah. you know, this is this is a difficult moment for for Saul. Um, but God sends him uh, a disciple in Ananias to teach him what he must do. And uh, Ananias comes and speaks to him, and and at, not without some reservations. God has to kind of talk him into it and tell him, hey, you know, this is for real. Like I'm sending you to this guy. Mm-hmm. He really is one of my chosen instruments. I'm going to use him. Uh, to do good for, and he's going to suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias goes and um, he tells Saul that the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you can regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in verse 18, um, his, his something like scales immediately falls from his eyes and he regains his sight. He gets up and he's baptized um, and he took food and was strengthened. And I should note here too that... Um, th- the way that the way that Luke describes when a person is converted in the gospel in, in the book of Acts um, is 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 not just the person is converted when they believe in Jesus, mm-hmm. but conversion begins not just with belief but with repentance and baptism. Um, I'll say that because later on, um, when Saul is recounting this story in Acts chapter twenty two, um, he says a little bit more explicitly. Um, how this conversation went in Acts chapter 22 and in verse uh, 13 after Ananias comes and says Saul receive your sight he looks up at him and Ananias says the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth for you will be a witness for him to, to all men of what you've seen and heard now why do you delay Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So what what Luke is telling us is that baptism wasn't just like a, you know, something you do after you're converted to kind of show, hey, I'm actually a Christian now. 
Um, baptism actually was significant because that's how you call upon the name of the Lord, and that's how your sins get washed away. Um, now, I, I, this is not a popular idea uh, in today's evangelical world, um, but it is what Luke is saying all throughout the Gospel of Luke and, and, and the book of Acts, and it's also what we're seeing throughout the whole New Testament, that a person's conversion begins when they believe in Jesus, they turn away, they, have, they repent, their mind is changed, their, their mind turns away from sin and turns to Christ, and they die with Christ in baptism. That's what Paul says in Rome 6, baptism really is. It's a death, a burial of that old man, and dead to sin, and now a resurrection to walk in new life. And so, you are converted. That's you go right. from a dead person in sin to a live person in Christ, and that uh, pivot point of conversion, you're saying, is it baptism? That's right. Not that it by itself does anything, but apart from faith in Christ, apart from repentance, getting dunked in water doesn't mean anything. But faith and repentance, without that pivot point, you may want to be converted, you may have the intention of changing, but letting God's power work in your life through baptism is essential in that. Right, fair enough. I mean, if, if the scriptures say this is how your sins are washed away, then this is how your sins are washed away, and this is this is what we ought to do. And what you see is from that moment on, Saul is a different person. Mm -hmm. From that moment on, he goes about and uh, he's preaching the one who he used to be trying to destroy. And people are saying about him, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who, and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? And by the way, one of the signs that the person's been converted is people start asking those kind of questions. About yeah. you. Like, hey, you know, isn't that the guy that used to do this and this and this? And now he's doing this and now he's preaching that? Like, what? That's not that's not what I expected. That's not that's not who I know him to be. Um, but this is a conversion, and this is important because one of the strongest pieces of evidence that Jesus really was risen from the dead is the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's it, the fact that somebody who had invested his entire life in destroying Christianity has now become a Christian, has become a disciple and is preaching the very Christ that he wanted to crush, um, is evidence that he must have had a real encounter with the Lord, and Jesus must really be raised from the dead. It's a little bit easier for people to dismiss, you know, these other guys that were close friends of Jesus, who were following Jesus and believing in Jesus and walking in his ways. Um, but it's hard to dismiss Saul of Tarsus. Sure. You know? This is a guy who was an enemy of Jesus, who is now preaching Jesus. How do you explain that conversion? Yeah. Yeah, it's powerful. So, I mean, Acts 10, we have another story that in some ways is, uh, there's some overlap and similarities, but in other ways it's very opposite. So Saul is this guy we look at, we're like, oof, he's like taking women away from their kids and dragging people to prison. I mean, he talks mm -hmm. in other places about the blood of people's lives. I think like he killed people or had people killed mm -hmm. because of the faith. When you open Acts chapter 10, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius a centurion, which as you pointed out, that's strange because this man is not a Jew. And so far, all the Christians are Jews. Mm -hmm. um, so this is somebody that's not on the team, essentially. But it talks about how he's you know, a powerful leader. But then verse 2 says he was a devout man who feared God with all his household. So not only was he religious and spiritual and godly, he was influential, which must be, he was legit. He wasn't a hypocrite. Usually people who are religious but religious hypocrites, their house doesn't believe with them. They reject the faith. He's influencing his household. Um, he gave alms generously 
to the people, and I presume that may mean all people, maybe specifically God's people. I don't know. You may have a thought on that, but it seems like that makes sense. Um, and it says he prayed continually to God. So this is a good guy. He didn't need to be yeah, converted, right? that's it. Exactly, right? Like, it's like, oh, well, that's like, if, if I just read that off and I said, Christian or not Christian, I think I'd be like, oh, yeah, they're a Christian. Right. But on this occasion, when he was praying, an angel appears to him and says, hey, kind of similar to what Saul had, where it was, hey, go in the city and someone's going to come talk to you. This time the angel comes to Cornelius and says, hey, send for Simon Peter. He's in this city, et cetera, et cetera. And then he's going to tell you what you need to know. Apparently, praying all the time, being charitable, even religious charity, um, being devout, being religious, influencing others, apparently good is not good enough. Right. So he goes and finds Peter, and there's actually a whole great, so I mean, we're, we're focused on conversion. I don't want to get too off track of that. There's a great um, meaning of Acts 10 and the scope of, of Acts as far as what this meant for Peter. But anyway... He goes and sends for Peter. Peter comes after receiving a vision from the Lord, and the people show up. And then when he gets there, Cornelius has gathered all his friends together. And Peter walks in, and he's like, listen, guys, I've come because God gave me a vision to come, but y'all know I'm a Jew. I'm not supposed to be hanging out with Gentiles. I'm not supposed to be in your home. So what am I doing here? And Cornelius says, we've all gathered to hear what you've been commanded by the Lord. And so then Peter launches into a sermon. And Peter says, you know, I think God's showing me, not I think. Peter says, God has shown me that I shouldn't call any person common or unclean. Like, no person has to stay away from God. Even the Gentiles, which at that time for the Jews, they thought they don't deserve. They, they can't be in here, mm-hmm. you know, because of their ethnic and religious and historical background. Um, but Peter says, look, I know that Jesus is Lord of all and that he brings peace to all who will come. And he preaches Jesus. He talks about the resurrection and the truth of the gospel and all that stuff. And uh, and at the end of it, the Spirit descends upon Cornelius and his household, which was the same thing that happened in Acts 2 with those who were with Jesus. And it's Peter, as he's looking, he realizes, wait a second, the Spirit descended on us. The Spirit's on them. Those are both from Jesus. Oh, man. And at the end of it, Peter says um, to those who are with him in verse 47 of Acts chapter 10, he says, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing this people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. The same thing that every other believer was ever commanded to do, going all the way back to Acts 2, the story you just uh, highlighted with Saul. Everybody who's come to faith in Jesus he says uh, they needed to do the same thing, be baptized in the name of Jesus, and then Peter remained with them for some time. I mean, I think the the striking thing about this is um, conversion is to Christ, and it's not, or I say the striking thing to me, you may have some other stuff on this, but it's convert being converted by and to Christ, not to like a group of people, mm-hmm. not to a movement, not to an ideology, mm-hmm. you know? He says they need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, well, listen, we need to circumcise all of y'all mm-hmm. so you can be Jews, and then you can be baptized into Christ. Or you can be baptized, and then you need to be circumcised. He didn't even talk about that. It wasn't about joining a group of people per se, although obviously those who love Jesus are going to love each other and are going to work together, as we've seen throughout the book of Acts. But the emphasis here is on you need to give your allegiance to Christ. Christ is the one who's going to change you. Which I think is important because I think a lot of people get the notion. I understand this, and there's something valuable about this. Uh, but people are like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I've, I'm struggling. I'm not the way I need. I need to change. I'm gonna get in church." 
Well, that's good, I guess. If you're going to a church that's practicing what's true and they're teaching the truth, then that's good. But there's just a real limitation on how much any group of people who themselves are flawed and have needed to be converted themselves, there's a limitation on how much we can do for somebody. It's only in coming to Jesus himself, being baptized into Christ, that someone can really be changed. Jesus is the agent of change. Jesus is the one who brings about real change in someone's life. So that's one lesson to me, I think, that that this uh, highlights. Another thing is, just kind of to repeat what we said earlier, even your best is not good enough. Mm-hmm. Cornelius was, I mean, I, I cannot imagine someone who would be more admirable, someone that I would look up to more, someone that I would want to have in my life to help me be a better, more godly person than Cornelius before he was baptized. But that wasn't good enough. He still, he hadn't, he didn't have the spirit in his life. He hadn't been baptized into Jesus, so it wasn't good enough. And I think it's easy for us to say, oh, yeah, I'm changing. I'm going to stop drinking. I'm going to stop sleeping around. I'm going to be a harder worker at my job. I'm going to treat my family better, my friends better, and I'm going to change. I'm going to change. But it goes back to the last point. Christ is the only one who can really convert somebody or change somebody. You can't make yourself good enough for God. You've got to give your life over to Jesus. And I think we see that in the story of Cornelius. Amen. That's that's exactly right. And I think we'll see that even in the book of Acts. We'll see that's that's what the people were preaching, was they preached the Lord Jesus. Mm-hmm. They ter- they told people to be converted to the Lord Jesus, to turn to the Lord Jesus, um, to remain true to the Lord Jesus. A good place to see that is in Acts 11, um, 19 to 26, with the beginning of the church at Antioch. Um, but you can't you can't understate understate that enough. I think you know today there's a lot about like hey you know I'm in trouble I need to get in church or I need to join a church or that's gonna as if the church is somehow gonna solve me my problems. Well, the truth is only Jesus can shed His blood and wash away my sins. Only Jesus has the power to take dead people and raise them up to walk a new life. And um, and certainly that doesn't that doesn't stop that doesn't mean that a person shouldn't join a church. Sure, right, right. Obviously, we should. If we're going to walk in the in in the ways of Jesus, but that's not how you get converted. You get converted by turning to the head of the church, the head of the body, which is Jesus, and yeah. having a relationship with Him. Yeah. All right. So let's land the plane with a, a few minutes of thinking about what do these stories uh, mean. And we've already kind of touched on this, so some of this will be recap, but maybe we might want to even expand on some of that. Um, if you had to lay out, let's say somebody's sitting there, and they're like, okay. I want to change. I want to be transformed. I want to be converted. What What do I need? Like, what do I need to do? What do I need in my life in order to be converted, in order to be changed? What do these two stories um, show us that would help? So maybe we just kind of kick some ideas back and forth on maybe the process, which is almost a bad way to talk because it makes it seem like it's just like, well, if you do like step A, B, C, D, E, F, G, then boom, you're converted. And you know, it's not always that clean or simple or whatever, mm-hmm. but there are some ingredients that you got to have a mixture of, and they may not always come in the perfect order or whatever. Some of them, I guess, have to be in the right order. If not, I guess they do need to be in the right order. But what are some of the ingredients for conversion that we learn from these stories and maybe just more broadly throughout the book of Acts? Well, I think obviously the first thing that needs to happen is we need to hear from the Lord. We need to see the light and come to look at Jesus and come to, come to know Jesus. And I don't think it's wise for us to sit around and wait for Jesus to speak to us audibly or to appear to, or to shine a bright light on me. That's that's not what we need. Jesus has shined the light into our life already. He's given us everything we need to know about how to 
how to have our lives completely transformed in his word. And so by looking into the word of God and hearing the word of God, that's the beginning process of, uh, of transformation. When I come to see Jesus as he really is and to come into the light and, and into his presence, that's where the, the, the process begins. Yeah. Like that's where it all, that's where it's all going to start. I agree. And so I was thinking about just on a practical level, like you pointed out, uh, even in Saul's time, most people weren't getting hit with a light. Right. So certainly in our time, we don't have any reason to expect that at all. Uh, but or a I think, vision. Or a vision. Sure. Like yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, with Cornelius. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Thanks. Yeah. Um, so maybe on a practical level, if you're sitting there, you're like, I want to be changed. Or by the way, maybe if you're someone who's like, well, I say I'm a Christian, but I don't know that my life or my change or whatever has looked quite like these guys. Like, mm-hmm. you may even need to reevaluate. Have you ever been, you may be a religious, devout person. Mm-hmm but you may need to really be converted. Well, one thing to do is, on a practical level, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, pick it up. One of those, all of those, read them, see Jesus, meditate on Jesus, reflect on Jesus, what he means. Granted, you can do that actually with all of Scripture. You can read Deuteronomy or Isaiah or Zephaniah or Acts or whatever, but Mm -hmm. especially the Gospels, that's where you're going to see him most clearly um, and hear from him and learn from him. I also add on to that, Maybe it's just paired right alongside it. Maybe it's another element here. But Cornelius and Saul, we see them before they become real Christians. Um, they may have believed in some level, but I mean, really became Christians. They're praying. Yep. Saul is praying for three days. Yep. Cornelius is a man of prayer. I mean, that's right. where his story begins. He's devoted to prayer. So if you're sitting there and you want to be changed, you need to be praying. Now, don't think that your prayers are going to save you by themselves. Obviously, these two men were praying and they still had more things they needed to do in order to be converted. But that's a big part of it. You need to be praying earnestly, calling out to Jesus to guide you, to help you, to provide for you, to change you. Um, And that's just as much to call on him as it is to recalibrate yourself whenever you're praying. But I think that's another ingredient that would fit into this. So reading the Gospels being devoted to prayer and, and seeking Jesus in prayer is a big part of it. Because God is a God who hears the prayers of those who are seeking him. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it, ought, it ought not be be me sitting around waiting for God to call out to me. I need to cry out to God. God has already been calling out to me. Mm-hmm. He's, he's, been, he's been giving me opportunities to turn to him. So uh, I need to be the one to, to cry out to God and ask God to help me. And and trust that he will help lead me to the truth on that. Yeah. Um, I'll just add to that too. Um, this this may be tricky and difficult at times, but um, one thing to be praying about is pray that God will send you a faithful teacher yep. who will be able to show you what you need to do. Um, if you know of faithful teachers, go and seek help from them. Um, both Saul and Cornelius received help. Um, Saul from Ananias. Cornelius from uh, Peter, uh, who were pointing them more accurately in what they needed to do in order to be saved, in order to be converted to Christ. And um, and same thing is true for us. If I'm in trouble, um, I shouldn't think like, and if I'm dead in my sins or if I'm you know lost and I'm, I'm blinded, I, I shouldn't think I'm going to be able to figure it out on my own. You know, I, I need I need help and I need to be willing to reach out to people who I know are faithful and who are going to handle the word of God accurately, who are going to point me in the right direction and teach me the way I should go. Yeah, I think that's huge. And especially, I think, I mean, that's that's one of the big ones I was thinking about too, that these stories show you need people to guide you. Mm-hmm. Um, but one, people who are devoted to Christ, as you pointed out, people who are faithful. Also people who are willing to 
challenge you That's or right. say things that you don't want to hear, really. That's right. And both of these guys are doing that, right? right. I mean, there's kind of a commanding presence, and they're altering the worldview and the perspectives of these individuals. And uh, so I, I think that's important because it's easy to find somebody who talks about Jesus a lot, but they're never going to say anything that challenges you. And they'll make you feel better about where your status with God, but that's not going to mean anything. Yeah. Maybe it's a good way, a good spot to say, if you're listening and you're in Brooklyn or not, and if you're looking for somebody to help you, um, we're here to help. And we maybe even know if you live wherever, let us know and we'll do what we can to try to help you find somebody. If you haven't found somebody who can really teach you the truth and help you uh, find guidance, we're happy to try to help you in any way from a distance or to find somebody up close and personal uh, because that's huge. you got to have people that understand the gospel to help you see what you need to see. Amen. Amen. Last thing I'll say about that, and then you may have some other thoughts, um, is there's more. you need more than knowledge. You need to you need to answer the call and obey. That's right. And you see that with Saul, with his uh, decision to turn away from his sins and be baptized at great cost. Now all of his friends and family are now his enemies. Mm-hmm. You know, and now the people who were his enemies, now he has to try to go make amends with them. I mean, right. this is there's nothing easy about this, but he knows it's true, so he obeys the the word of the Lord, and he realizes that this same Jesus who died on the cross, who we put to death on the cross, like, he died for me. He died so that I could be saved. And and seeing and appreciating what Jesus had suffered for his sake made Paul willing to obey Jesus, even to the point where he would suffer much for the sake of Jesus. And I'll just say for us, too, I mean, there's a lot of people who know what they need to do, and yet they're not doing it. And I've been one of those people in the past. Um, you know, I know, I know the right things to do, but I'm not actually obeying it. If I'm actually going to be converted... Conversion is not about knowledge. Conversion is about knowledge that leads to transformation. Mm -hmm. And that transformation only comes through submission to God and God's word and a willingness to obey him. Yeah, I think that's right. And I I think about that in two respects. One, you already pointed this out, but where you see this pivot point of where they go from sinners to saints is at baptism, this act of obedience Mm -hmm. of, yes, I will be baptized into Christ. I will give my life to him. I'm repenting, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but also in the rest of the New Testament, conversion isn't just a one-time thing necessarily. And this is really important for those of you who are listening. And maybe, again, you already believe in Jesus. You may be following Jesus to some in some measure. Uh, there are a number of passages in the New Testament that speak about needing to be converted or transformed or renewed. And it's written to people who've already been baptized into Christ. People who've already, quote-unquote, been converted but there's another level of conversion, right? So passages like Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 will talk about exactly your point. Put off lying or greed or immorality and put on kindness and compassion and honesty and all these things. And in that context of talking about those acts of obedience, the reason that's given is you need to put off your old self and put on the new self being renewed in the spirit of your mind. You need to be renewed in the image of your creator. Wait a second, I already thought we were renewed. I already thought we were converted. I was baptized. Right. I repented. Well, yeah, but that conversion is actually a, uh, there's kind of a always, always, always and not yet, like we're just always doing it. Right. Um, and we're going for that all the time. And it requires that obedience on an ongoing basis to truly be converted and transformed. One of, one of the Bible images for that is conversion begins when you are born again. Yeah, great, yeah. And you are born again to like a newborn infant. 
But Ephesians 4 talks about how we're growing up into this mature man in Christ. And so I think you're right. Conversion is really a lifelong process from the time a person turns away from sin and turns first to Christ. Then that begins the process of conversion, which will not end until we stand before him, finally perfected and purified and transformed that new man uh, in Christ. Yeah. And you even see that in the story. Ananias, Jesus comes to Ananias and says, go talk to Saul. And Ananias is like, uh, are you sure? Yeah, I heard not. about that. Have you heard about this guy? Because I heard about this guy. Yeah. Well, it was an act of obedience by Ananias that leveled up his conversion of greater courage and greater forgiveness and greater compassion towards somebody. Mm-hmm. Same thing with Peter, even more so in Acts yeah. 10, which we didn't talk about enough. But when you read the story, Peter is like, no, I would never eat that kind of meat. Or he even says, I would never. And we see later on in Peter's life in Galatians 2, he had a lot of problems with associating with Gentiles. It was so against what he had learned and what he knew before and who he was before. He had to be converted. He, even a disciple, someone who was in Christ, a a leader, I mean, arguably the most significant leader in the early church, Mm -hmm. he had to be converted in the way he thought about the world and the way he thought about his service to God. So, yeah, like you're saying, it's an ongoing process and and we see examples of that even here. Maybe to your last point about how that conversion will be finished in the end, I think it's important to note God is the one who orchestrates conversion. God is the one who provides for conversion. God is the one who makes conversion possible. It's not any good deeds that anybody does. It's not anybody's fasting that's going to bring about change. It's not their prayers. It's mm-hmm. not their the pious deeds. None of that stuff. Amen. You see that in Saul? That, uh, you know, even the, I mean, just everything about his story where Jesus appears to him and Jesus, you know, blinds him. And then Jesus liberates him of the blindness and he receives the spirit, all that stuff. And Jesus is the one who says to him, hey, how, why are you kicking against sure. the goat? He'd been prodding him all the way yeah. there, you know. And so Jesus right. is the one who, uh, who sent Ananias, right? I mean, this whole thing. <laughs> now, right. still, I know some people take that too far and they're like, oh, like you don't do anything in your conversion. God's the one who does it. Well, obviously not. Jesus gives commands and instructions, but you see that Jesus is the one who engineers it. And the same thing in Acts 10. Right. The angel is sent to Cornelius. The vision is given to Peter. The Spirit descends upon the people um, to give a signal of, yes, I'm willing to receive these people. Uh, it's just over and over again we see this emphasis that it's the Lord who brings about change. And so all the stuff we talked about, of if you're sitting there and you've never been converted, you need to read the Gospels. You need to encounter Jesus. You need to be praying and calling on Him and seeking Him out. You must be obedient. You need other people in your lives who are faithful, who can actually help you to understand the gospel. But at the end of the day, all those things are just tools that the Lord is using to bring about new life and new change uh, in our lives and to convert us. And that'll that'll be proven at last in the resurrection. Whenever those who are dead in Christ will be raised up and they'll be perfectly transformed and conformed to his image and the conversion will be complete. But it's all by His power. It's all by His grace. And so that means two things. Don't ever get arrogant and think, oh, I'm really, I'm doing some big stuff here in my conversion. I'm already converted. Yeah, yeah. look out. <laughs> yeah. Also, don't despair whenever you're not quite done. That's right. You're a divine project. And if you don't give up on it, God's not going to give up on you. And understand that and, uh, and keep on seeking out his, his path for how He's going to convert you. Keep on submitting to that and obeying that and following that. But understand that at the end of the day, it's his work to bring about that change, and we need to trust in that. And I know you got a favorite verse on this you want to read. Yeah, so in the, the beginning of Philippians, I love this text. Um, Paul says, 
that he who began this good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. And that's really the promise of God. The God who begins this process of transformation and conversion in us will continue to work in, work in us. So we work out our salvation with fear and trembling um, because we know it's God who's at work in us, um, and he's the one who's going to finish it. Amen. That's probably a good place to stop. Thanks for listening. If you're sitting here and you're thinking, I need to change, this is kind of a helpful intro, but I actually need more direction specifically in my situation about how to change. Uh, we don't care if you're in Brooklyn or you're far away. We've enjoyed getting feedback and having communication about uh, about life and about the gospel uh, with people who are listening and, and engaging with us. So if we can help you in any way, please reach out. If you are here in Brooklyn, we'd love to sit down with you talk with you at a coffee shop or in your home or in our home or wherever you're comfortable uh, to talk about faith in Christ and how you can come to faith and how you can be changed and become what God wants you to be and be converted, upgraded into the very image of God. And so let us help you. Let us know. You can reach out to us on thewaybk.com. You can reach out to us on Facebook, on our Facebook page, The Way BK. Uh, anything we can do for you, we're here for you and we'd love to help. Amen. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. The aim of The Way BK is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ across Brooklyn and beyond. For more information or to contact us, please visit www.thewaybk.com.